Welcome back to the Second Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. What's, where are we? What, what sector are we on? The second sector, so sector 29. I think it's 29, is it? The name escapes me. It's a French. Quivy. Quivy, yes. Same place as last year. Quite different conditions to last year. Last year, I think we did a weather report from the eye of the storm. And this year, we're kind of getting a bit sunburned with dust instead of mud. We are, of course, bringing you the men's Paris-Roubaix episode today. Yeah, we're, we're out on course. That's you gotta, you got to go out on course. Like I said, I'm Kaylee Fretz. we got Johnny Long with us. How are you, Johnny? Very well. It's so hot that fans on the other side of the road have just taken their tops off. Uh, so I'm feeling very at home here. <laughs> and you just heard Ronan earlier. Yes, hello. And Amy Jones, how are you? Hello, I'm suffering from hay fever and dust-induced sneezing, but I'm all right. Maybe we just all have COVID. I hope not. Really hope not. Anyway, we're going to bring you a bit of color from the side of the, well, like I said, Sector 2 or Sector 3, or I guess they count down, Sector 29. Bring you some color from the side here and then head to the velodrome to break it all down once again. Do we know what's happening at the moment? What's happening at the moment? Chaos. Chaos. There, there, at some point, there was some chaos. You don't know exactly what happened, but somehow a group of 73 riders has split off the front of, well, effectively made two pelotons. Some of the favorites are stuck behind. Uh, the whole Enios team are in front with some of the other favorites. Uh, and it's really, yeah, it's, and it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds from here. Crucially, it's Van der Poel and Van Aert who are behind as well. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah, they missed it. That is a big deal. Even I know that. <laughs> I guess I guess the more interesting thing here is just what we can see here because most people can see more than us on TV. And where we're standing is right on a T-junction, or a crossroads actually, between two cobbled roads. They come from our right, and there's a 90-degree right-hand bend. And that bend is on cobbles, but it's also severely dusty, loads of gravel. It looks absolutely treacherous. And that's where, I think last year there was a lot of, I just remember being stunned by how slowly we came around the same corner last year. And that was possibly because they were aware of how bad the conditions were. This year with it being so dusty, it's one of those where riders maybe have to take chances on corners and not really know, you know, because is it going to be fast, is it going to be slow? You just don't know until you get there. And it's the exact kind of surface that I wouldn't be surprised if we've seen a pile up right here, right now, even with as far to go in the race as it is. Plus, it's a bit of a downhill run into here, so they're flying when they hit this this right-hand corner. It's funny to me that, you know, in a, in a Tour de France stage, for example, or any other one-day race, they spend so much time cleaning the course. They, like, run street sweepers over it ten times, and then <laughs> you look at this corner right in front of us, which they're expected to do on what, basically the same tire technology, right? Like, slightly fatter, but nothing that's really going to help them get around that corner, which is currently covered in sand and rocks. And here's, we've just seen exactly why it is so dusty here, is because there's so much traffic in front of the race. It's, you know, you know, until you've actually seen how many vehicles come through here before the race, it's just quite hard to believe. Each and every one of these vehicles come through. There's a transit van come through here at the moment, and it's taking the racing line through the corner and ripping up the ditch. The ditch is getting a bit bigger every time a vehicle comes through it, and it's throwing more and more gravels, dust, stones onto the corner that we've already described as being so treacherous. The racing line is definitely off of the cobble in this corner no question you just pop into the dirt in fact i would imagine that we see riders come up in the dirt on the right hand side here the whole time anyway let's wait for uh, let's qualify them <laughs> let's uh 
let's pause a moment and come back when the riders come through. We got drummers here. It's a party at every corner. And if you stand in front of the fans, they get very angry at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very angry. <laughs> I read almost. <laughs> Here it comes. Oh, yeah, my boy. Kind of tucked in. Tucked in behind the photo motos. In fact, we're with Jared Gruber and Christophe Ramon, two cyclists photographers, hanging out in this excellent corner. And we've got the first rider. And all of Ineos on the front of this group as they round the right-hand corner, they're crawling. They clearly know that this is a nasty one. Came into it hot, slammed on the brakes, and they're off. Casper Asgreen, I'm pretty sure, was one of the guys dropped, and so that is, you know, you've, you've stayed in the race. It's, they're still coming through now. There's people, there's fans running across in between the cars. Just hit an Alpecin Phoenix guy. Just knocked him off his bike over here. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's, I've never seen anything like this. I've, I've been to the tour. I've been to whatever. I've never been to Paris Bay. This is this is not bike racing. This is someone else entirely. Johnny, that was your uh, that was your first that was your first uh, Roubaix corner experience for the men's race. Anyway, well, describe it for me. Yeah, you could feel it building before. Like obviously, on a mountain stage of the tour, you feel it building, but it wasn't quite like that. Like, there's vendors selling, like big tent selling beer. Everyone's sort of already a little bit drunk. And then it's just like you feel the... Re- you can f- really feel the race approaching with the <laughs> with the, with the beeps going off. Um, <laughs> like, behind us, we just accidentally stood in front of some old French women, and they just took no other second to think about, like, shoving us in the back and telling us to move out of the way because they'd been... <laughs> Because they didn't want to miss it, and you can understand why after you after you've seen that. Yeah, and it's and it's this sort of like in and out thing, right? People try to hit as many sectors as they can when they come to Roubaix. Whereas, you know, Tour de France generally you're parked up for the day, you know, and, and it and it kind of lowers the stress levels a little bit, and you're just like, well, we're just gonna have some lunch here. We're gonna watch the race come by, maybe hit it again tomorrow. But you've got lots of people here, hundreds of people, trying to get to three or four sectors today. As soon as like the first few groups were passed, there was just a mad... First, it's the Swaniers who like obviously do this day in, day out, just running in front of cars. And then, obviously, all the spectators are like, oh, he's done that, I'll, I'll just do that too. But <laughs> they have no you know, have no experience of like running in front of an Ineos Grenadiers team car. Um, so then when that happens, you know, riders are sort of getting held up, barriers are being moved out of the way. And, yeah, everyone... It's like a full-on sprint, like evacuation from something they've been waiting so long for to get to the next one. It's um, It's incredible. Hi, I'm Ashley Gruber. How do you say it? No. I've been saying it wrong the whole time? <laughs> no. Uh, we're, we're in the velodrome. You guys had a pretty chaotic day, as always, as photographers in the race. How'd your day go? 
Well, every single red light on the way to Roubaix was green, so that was super lucky. Um, I saw Jared sprinting across the velodrome as Van Barla entered. He tripped. I think he has a bloody knee. We'll see. Um, but I was there, so it's fine. Um, yeah, it was like always hectic. I'm glad it's another year until the next one. How do you kind of split up how you two shoot the thing? Because you we work as a duo, which is kind of unique. So we identify spots where I can easily cut or something really specific, and then I will tell Jared where I go, um, and then he kind of leapfrogs around me. Because he's on the moto. He's on the moto. I'm in the car. I saw him somewhere. I don't even know where I was. One of the sectors. He got off and gave me a high five. <laughs> he's good for that. <laughs> uh, any misses today? Any sadness? No, I don't think so. Uh, well, I missed one spot because there wasn't a place to park, but it was fine. In the end, it wasn't anything. And then something I thought was going to be a mistake ended up being something interesting. So, Do you, like, know what your good photos are now? Um, no, I have no idea. I, I know that I took some things that made me happy, but I have no idea. I, I didn't ch- check if it's in focus. I hope it's in focus, but... I feel like you guys should put, like, happy in the metadata so we know what to pick for the galleries. Right. No, yeah, I mean, I mean, if they're edited, then they're happy, pretty much, so. All right. Well, fans out there, keep an eye out for a Gruber gallery coming up soon for Perry Bay. Thank you. Thank you. Hey. So we're back. We're back. Where, where, where are we, Ronan? Uh, Lille. 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 We're in Lille. We're still in France. Yeah, we're still in France. <laughs> uh, would you like to, I don't know, maybe set the scene? Like, what, what are we, what's, what's around us right now? There's uh, dog. We're going to get to the dog. We're going to get to the dog. Also, there's two dogs, but Johnny has two feet. Debbie, the, the, listen, the, the listeners can't hear you if the microphone's not in front of you. Just, just to, as, as a reminder. No, no, I was just pointing out the dog. Ronan, set the scene, please. We're in the beautiful square in the heart of Lille in northern France, and I'm actually quite surprised how beautiful Lille is. This podcast is not sponsored by Lille, and all our northern French studies are available. But, but I have to say. Um, Pleasantly surprised by how, how nice Lille is. It's it's nothing like Roubaix. We in fact asked the question of ourselves on the way up in the car as to why it is Paris Roubaix and not Paris Lille, which would seemingly make much more sense. Yeah, but then you couldn't finish in the velodrome, and that'd be sad. I don't know if the first one finished in the velodrome though. No, they they actually didn't finish in the velodrome for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so. they have since like the I want to say the four like post-war era for sure. Maybe fifty six. Maybe, ah, no, no, no. I correct myself. There were definitely a couple years in, I believe, the 60s that finished at a, I want to say a supermarket, because that was the main sponsor. Makes sense. Yeah. Was so it Carrefour? Lille was the sponsor. It might have, I don't know if Carrefour existed at that my, point. My but. theory is that Lille was, has enough attention and the organizers wanted to put some of the spotlight on Roubaix. Yeah, which is not a not as, a you as put the beautiful a town. Often. Yeah, I would say it's not... Not on my top ten places to visit in France. <laughs> Probably closer to the bottom ten. <laughs> Probably closer to the bottom ten. A- any other weekend of the year, kind of a no-go. You know, Ronan, you did mention uh, a sponsorship, 
We do have we do have a sponsor of today's episode. The Pros Closets biggest event of the year is here. You can save up to $300 on your next bike at theprosecloset.com. Take 30% off parts and apparel, $100 off orders over $1,000, and get free shipping site-wide. Choose from thousands of brands like Specialized, Trek, and Cannondale, and Yeti. Master Mechanics tune every pre-owned bike to mint condition. Then the Pros Closet ships direct to your door. Thank you, Debbie, for your help with this sponsorship. Shop the best deals of the season at theprosecloset.com. Startup season sale starting April 14th. Go check out theprosecloset.com. And thank you to The Pros Closet for sponsoring today's Roubaix episode. All right, so we've set the scene. Thank you, Ronan, for, for doing that. Uh, did we miss anything? Did we miss any, any key attributes of Lille? We're sitting here on the square. The lights are quite nice. Many lights, at least Sir. three different colors. Yeah, from where service I can is see. quite slow. <laughs> the service is service, quite slow. Yeah, um, but you know, we did get dinner. We got hamburgers. They were possible for they this were time passable of for nine o'clock hamburgers in France, and and we can't complain. We no. can't complain. Debbie over here, once again speaking not into the microphone, so you couldn't hear that fantastic Do quip. Do I have to? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> were you about to ask? Do I have to speak into the microphone? <laughs> That's enough faffing about. I think let's get into today's bike race. It was a it was a really really good edition of Paris Roubaix. I very much enjoyed it. It had it kind of had a, a bit of everything. Obviously, no wet weather like we had last year, but that made it apparently the fastest Paris Roubaix in history. We'll talk maybe a little bit about why that was. Stefan Kung spoke to it quite eloquently, I thought, in the uh, press conference. Before we get anywhere. Who won the race, Ronan? Niels Michot of the AG2R Citroën under-19 team. It's Paris-Roubaix Juniors we're talking about, right? Ah, ah. Yes. That's, I mean, we can talk about Paris-Roubaix Juniors. It's actually, Paris-Roubaix Juniors tends to be a pretty good indicator of, of who is going to be an interesting rider in five or so years' time. Uh, when Taylor Finney won it a couple times. I know... Garen Thomas. Garen Thomas did. Teo Gegenhardt did actually a pretty good couple rides there, and he's not really a Roubaix rider, but just shows kind of who who the classy bike riders are, basically. Yeah, and just one quick nerd nugget that I heard through the grapefruit. Grapevine? Grapefruit? <laughs> <laughs> the Pirate Roubaix riders in the junior race, of course, have to use a 52-14 standard junior gear. Right. Which limits them to about a 25 tire. And the juniors this year wanted to run bigger tires, so what they've done is, or one quite in, clued in junior, ran 30 tires and then swapped to a uh, 51.16, if I remember right. Uh, I need to do the math on this now, but 51.16 to get the same rollout, but get the wider tires. And I was just looking there to see if that helped them infiltrate the top 10, but I don't see his name there. Didn't? Sad. Yeah. Junior rollouts are stupid. But anyway, we can we can leave that <laughs> we can leave that particular topic aside. I just remember being annoyed by it when I was a junior racer, and I, the explanation that they have provided for why that is has never really sat particularly well with me. Anyway, let's move on. To answer your question, the, Dylan, Dylan Van Barl. Yes, the the premier there. event today was won by Ineos Grenadiers Dylan Van Barl, a sort of I don't want to say unheralded, but, but semi-heralded name on that team. 
Johnny, you mentioned before we hit record here that he wasn't even included in the pre-race press conference. No, for Ineos it was Felipe Ganna and Michal Kwiatkowski, which you can't, that's probably just who like the media have asked for to appear. But, and maybe that reflects badly on like us lot because <laughs> Van Bala, yeah, hey? well Van Bala finished second at Flanders Worlds last year, second at Tour of Flanders, and there wasn't really much chat about him at all. But then that's kind of the rider he is. He's just like, he's sneaky, but just like, is tough. And he just is there and just and like just rides. It's not lit, like his attack was barely like it just happened and that was that. Yeah, let, let's talk sort of a little bit about how he how he won today's bike race. I mean, from the start, Ineos was clearly wanted to be on the front foot, right? And and we heard about that in the press conference afterward. He spoke quite a bit about kind of the, the mentality that the team came into today's race with. They blew apart the race really, really early. I'm not sure if they we're gonna do it that early, but the, what, what seems to happen now is that they're just so, there's something's changed where they just like make those decisions and it actually works. Whereas you've seen Ineos in the past two Tour de France, like sitting on the front doing loads of work and they just burn themselves up and it all falls apart. And that's kind of what we thought was happening as we were driving north from Ronan. Yeah, I think it was just a point where we, you know, you looked and you had, yes, all seven, seven wasn't it? And the Ineos riders in the front group, but it was a group of 73. And you're thinking, you know, at what point is having all your team in the move not actually an advantage if the move is so big? Uh, and certainly there was a lot of question marks at that point whether or not it would work out well for them. Uh, obviously, in the end up, it did. Uh, but Van Barla, he just... I can't really put a finger on why he flies under the radar so well, but he can just, you know, he's such a classy bike rider, sits on a bike, hardly in millimeter of movement from his upper body and it, you know he also can pick his moments so well he 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 bridged across to Eve Lampard and Matej Mohoric which was an epic move to make before he even you know before he even went solo after that but still not at no point until we suddenly realized he had like 35 seconds that we think he was over the race was over whereas you put Wout van Aert or Matthew van der Poel or Mohoric even in that position and you're saying this race is gone but even when he was in the leading winning position you know I think a lot of people still weren't really you know still expected the race behind to come back rather than for him to power ahead like he did what he said was that he likes it when it's so hard that it takes the top off of all the, the Van der Poels, the Van Aert's top power, and then that basically reduced it down to a race that he can win. So I guess if it's just like if they'd like sort of trundle through a traditional Roubaix where nothing really happens in the first 100 kilometers, maybe he wouldn't have had the, he wouldn't have been in contention to really like match those guys. Yeah, he basically said that he doesn't have the same top end as them until 250K, and then he can do the same thing he's been doing the whole day and others can't and he took advantage of that and, and and then he needed a really hard race and obviously we have the fastest Roubaix in history that was a pretty damn hard race from the gun and, and Stefan Kung like I said talked about this quite a bit and the fact that because Ineos sort of hit it so early one that's what led to that high average speed but it also just meant that there was no there was no downtime in the entire race today and that really plays into a rider like Dylan Van Barl's hands I think because like you said you maybe can't match the others, you know, on Paderberg, for example, when he just couldn't quite hang on. But in this race, at the end of a, of a day that long, he can do enough to 
surf off the front, basically. Do we think it was a tactical victory or a, or a brute force victory? We, after the finish, we found Bradley Wiggins sort of slumped in the middle of the grass after seven hours on a motorbike. And he immediately was like, this is like Brailsford all over. Like he rips up the rule book, does things where other people wouldn't expect. But then you talk to like Ben Turner and the guys there and they were like, this was not, this is not how it was supposed to happen. Like <laughs> it's, it was like that, that start of that race was not in any, you can't like, you can't plan that. And it was just taking advantage of the situation. What I think really counts for them is that they just worked so well as a team. They were they were the best team by far out there in terms of like on that. I was going to say masterclass, but that word is used so often. It was just what was going to roll out of my, off my tongue. I didn't quite mean that, but Enios certainly played the team tactics quite well today. They were you know they had all seven riders in that first move. They were ready to work together. They placed riders in moves throughout the race. And they always had two or three in the front at all times. And Van Barla mentioned in his press conference that at one point he turned to Kwiatkowski and you know, either said he was feeling good or Kwiatkowski asked him how he was feeling. And at, at that point, Kwiatkowski then said, we're all in for you. I'm going to write, I'm going to do everything I can for you. Uh, and we had uh, Ben Turner in front as well until he crashed. And it's the same thing. He said he was feeling pretty, Turner was feeling pretty empty. But that Van Barla said that he... <laughs> Distracted by the guy washing his hands with a bottle of Perrier on the street. <laughs> Van Barla said that... This is the kind of colour you get nowhere else. Lille, everybody. Sponsored by Lille. <laughs> Van Barla mentioned that Turner said he was feeling empty coming on to the closing parts of the race as well. And Van Barla advised him to take a gel and then also sort of lend a helping hand for Van Barla to eventually make his move to, to bridge across to the leaders. So... You know, while it was one Ineos rider that finished solo across the line in the, in the velodrome, I do think throughout the race there was a, a sort of a team approach that we don't normally see from Ineos. Like Johnny mentioned, we, we, when we see Ineos doing team tactics, it's usually riding on the front of the bunch, boring us all into submission. This was a different type of team approach from the Ineos Grenadiers. You spoke to Ben Turner, right, Johnny? Yeah, we, we sort of waited for him. With this race, you can't just go up to the riders immediately and be like, can I talk to you? You have to kind of wait for them to figure out who they are again. And like he stood up, he stood up and sort of almost like fell backwards in on himself again. He was so dazed. And we were like, me and another reporter were looking at him like, do we need to like call someone for help? But then eventually he came around. At the start, he was like quite emotional, realizing that what he'd done, he was a bit gutted he got 11th, not 10th. But he's announced himself in a way that no other rider really has so far this season. Yeah, and was pretty key to the victory, I would say. I mean, you know, uh, Van Barl talked in the in the press conference about like telling him, telling Ben Turner to take a gel, to do as much as he could, to to basically hit the front and make it as hard as he possibly could, ahead of the moment when Van Barl finally escaped. And, and you can basically tie those two things directly together. I mean, Ben Turner's ride was very much not responsible for, but very much sort of part of. Van Barl's ability to get away. I'm pretty sure they were the only team at the end with more than one rider in the group. And then that's how they won Brabant Appeal and Amstel Gold. It's just, it's num they're playing numbers better than teams like Quickstep usually do that. Right, so, so what the heck happened? Because they've been really garbage at Spring Classics and one days generally for a very long time, right? 
for a very long time, they were the dominant Tour de France team, the dominant Grand Tour team. This spring, they have been quick step. They have been the best. We thought Yumbo was going to be the best, and they were in some early races. But particularly since Waffenert got sick, Ineos has been the best classics team. So what changed? What happened? Maybe today Pogaccia. Like if you're, if there's a, if there's a, that's the race, that's their race. If you realise there's not really much you can do by him falling off, change attack. You take a couple years of maybe really trying to change it around, but sucking at the classics. You finally get the right group together and the tactics, and all of these young classics riders will also support them in the Grand Tours. So it's it's just finally come good for them, I think. I think it's the the roster that they have now too. They have Tom Pitcock not here today, but here today they have Magnus Sheffield, Ben Turner. Van Barla, who has always been up there in the classics, this isn't his first good performance in Roubaix, uh, and a couple of other names that escape my mind right now. But they they have taken a you know in in terms of the riders that they've recruited over the last few years, they've gone in a very different direction from the sort of Grand Tours and super domestic riders that they've had in the past. And with the likes of you know, Service Canavan at the wheel today, and Roger Hammond, a rider who has finished. Service Canavan has won Roubaix. Don't know how many times he's finished in the top 10, but I suspect a few more. And Roger Hammond, who has finished in the top 10 a few times at Roubaix also. Two of the, the probably the best combo in any of the cars throughout the, the cavalcade today. And those things, you know, they really make a difference. We also heard Van Barda mention just how much work the team is doing in terms of preparation for Roubaix, in terms of technical, or uh, in terms of equipment choices, and I guess that just is like tire pressure and tire selection. Um, interestingly, we're running tire inserts today, but they had tested all that. I, I was speaking to Dan Bigham earlier, and he says there's nothing massive they're really doing because they're, they're riding fairly standard Dogma F uh, frames. They're riding the same Shimano wheels they race throughout, but really we all know at this point that tires and tire pressure is, is the crucial difference at Roubaix. And, sort of guessing that doesn't really work it takes a bit of legwork takes a bit of preparation and they seem to be ready to go down that approach now and, and really going to obey all guns blazing well it's kind of changed really fast right i mean because because the size of tire that they're running has changed the type of tire that they're running has changed in the last couple of years and they have to kind of refigure it out right like when you were running 28 mil tubulars which they were for the 20 years prior the entire peloton was for the 20 years prior everyone had that pretty well dialed but all of a sudden we're on tubeless all of a sudden we're on 32s they're having to sort of figure it out again so not too surprising that it takes a couple of years to sort of fully fully do that and like you were saying johnny it feels to me like this pretty abrupt shift in sort of team focus has finally finally coming good basically like they've pulled in a bunch of these riders that can win one day races of all sorts of different types and they have the cash to do that like they have the the budgets i mean dylan van Barra, let's not forget was riding for ef not too long ago jonathan Botters has lamented over and over and over again the rich team's ability to basically steal talent not steal buy <laughs> buy talent <laughs> which is exactly what what Ineos did here, and they've done it all over the place, and so now they've built themselves, you know, classic squads that are very kind of similar in look and feel to their old Tour de France squads, where they've got they've got a pile of riders who can all potentially make a top five or a top ten. Gives you just tons of options in a race like Roubaix, where options are are kind of the 
best bet, really. 100%, yeah. Um, we probably should also mention that there's been a lot of trial and error involved here. Like, any of us and... They were terrible for a very long time. <laughs> like, we used to make fun of them all the time for trying to win classics and failing miserably. <laughs> but not but only that, really but they that. were, like, openly stated how every year how they were trying to win Roubaix. It's not that they... It's not like they were a movie star or Uskatel yeah. or I something. I mean, Ian Stander was third, right? Yeah, and Fletcher was up there. Yeah. And, you know, they have had writers... Moscom was up there, and they've, they've had writers who performed well at Roubaix, but standalone performances or individual performances rather than team performances like we're seeing classic after classic at the moment from NAS Grenadiers. Let's move on from the winner, as impressive as that was. Uh, I want to talk about Wout and Matthew Vanderpool. So... First of all, let's start with Wout, because Wout said before the race that one, he was sick, which we know is true, he was actually sick. Two, that he was gonna be a domestique. Now we kind of called bullshit on that ahead of time. That turned out to be, well, our call turned out to be correct, right? I mean, it, clearly he, he was fit enough to be on the podium, <laughs> so he's not a domestique, but we heard a kind of interesting explanation for that, Johnny, and, and a pretty interesting response to a, a quite direct question from one of our, our colleagues. You're right, Johnny. The, the, <laughs> well, that was after. The, the first bit is that whenever, like, Wout van Aert's in, like, a press conference that you know, like, a Belgian or a Dutch journalist is just going to ask something that will get their back up. Yep. And that's kind of part of the reason why we turn up. It's just to sort of see it all kick off. Um, and this journalist just, like, completely brazen, like, no sort of no care in the world it's just like Alps and Phoenix have been saying all week how you're lying and you can't, like from the looks of it you kind of were and Wout Van Aert just looks back at him and is like I don't care at all and then just like fire in his fire, eye like yeah just like don't mess with him very abrupt that, that was clearly all of the answer that, that anybody was going to get on that one but then later he went on to talk more about how when asked like if this spring was like a disappointment or he was impressed with what he managed to do because he's won like a couple of races. By esteemed journalist Johnny Long, he was asked that question. I asked a good question and I messed it up straight afterwards. So <laughs> um, and he said like, yeah, like obviously I, like, I'm proud of what I did today, but it does like basically kind of makes me think of what could have been if I hadn't got sick two days before Flanders. I could have performed there, could have performed at Amsterdam, could have performed at Paris Bay. And obviously asked him afterwards, oh, so you mean, in a dumb way, like dumb question, oh, so you mean you could have won today if you, if you hadn't been ill? And he's like, I'm not giving you a quote like that. He literally said that, didn't he? He was yeah. like... Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, what did he say? The question before, like, when you're, like, looking at him and, and like, he's giving you an answer, you're, like, nodding along, you're having a nice time, he's, like... You're bonding. And then you you're bonding, you're connecting, and then straight away afterwards, he's just like, oh, you ruined it. Deep, deep, wow, well, eye contact was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Johnny thought he was in love. I still haven't got over it, really. <laughs> he's been crying in the car all the way to Lille about it. Yeah. I'll continue crying afterwards. <laughs> but yeah, Im like Im impressive from Wout van Aert. At this point, it was such a good ride, and like it's, his whole story this spring and like always is so interesting. You, you kind of don't mind if he's like bullshitting everyone in the lead up. Like you kind of like the mind games. Well, Maybe we need more of that. I mean, first of all, yes, I would like. I love mind games, and I 100% approve of of messing with your your competition. I'm not actually sure that he was in this case, though. I mean, he was. He basically said that like. Uh, he had sort of consulted with his doctors and the team and things like that, and they had basically decided, okay, yeah, I can race. But it wasn't until a couple days ago, according to him in the press conference, that he actually felt okay. He was able to ride, what, like a week and a half ago or so? He went 
as they kept calling it, to the sun in the article. When I was translating it, they kept putting in quotes, to the sun, they meant Spain. Oh. Which, <laughs> looking at the forecast, I'm going there tomorrow, doesn't look like the sun. There's no sun there? No. Oh, that's sad. So he went down there to like, you know, to get sun. warm and away from the, the, the damp Belgian weather. Yeah. Which is a good idea if you've got some kind of lung issue like COVID, which is what he had. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yeah, it was. It was. I'm not sure that he was actually full of it. I, I'm not sure that he was lying. He had COVID. He was poorly. We, poor he definitely poor had love. COVID. But like, but I'm not even sure that he. I don't think he knew that he was going to be this good because. It, if, if he's telling the truth about, he basically said that he was he was riding before that, but every single day at the end of the ride, he like couldn't recover, which, yeah, sounds like you were just sick. He said that that only changed in the last couple days, and so you just don't really know. Like you don't you don't know how you're gonna feel. <laughs> now, what does often happen in instances like this, which is, you know, a rider gets sick or they get injured or something like that, and it turns out they've essentially been riding like too much, right? And the brake kind of helps them. And so I'm not sure that it helped him today, but it didn't really hurt him that much. And, and he kind of admitted as such. He's like, I didn't really lose much fitness over the, this whole COVID debacle, right? I came into this maybe not as like 100% as he would have been, but 99, like pretty damn close, which you can't, even Wavener cannot hit the podium at Roubaix, anything below 99%. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't think he was full of it. I don't think he knew. I think he was probably pres pleasantly surprised by his legs today, and he just didn't quite have it in the end. Surprise, surprise. Endurance athlete trains a million hours in three weeks, gets a bit of rest, and actually goes better after the rest. <laughs> have we ever heard that happen before? <laughs> it's like a broken record. But Does that mean you're going to be flying when you get that off? Uh, I think that's too much rest. Yeah, <laughs> that might be too much rest. But the, uh, It happens all... <sighs> It happens somewhat frequently. I mean, Matt Heyman is a kind of similar example, right? Like Matt Heyman broke his collarbone and then, was it wrist, collarbone? I can't remember what he broke. He broke something. And he spent like, what, four or five weeks on Zwift and then only got back on the road like shortly before Roubaix and then turned around and won Roubaix, right? Now you could, you could say that was Zwift or you could say that was, he couldn't ride 30 hours a week because he's inside. Either way, yeah, it's, it's not the first time that's happened. And Van Aert was, you know, he was more than good enough to get on the podium today. He was massively impressive. Some of the moves he was making, some of the, you know, the uh, accelerations that he made, off the back of punctures, bike changes. He punctured right as they hit the Forest of Arnberg. The worst possible moment. Had to get a teammate's bike. That's, you know, but still to be in the front, you know, spending half an hour chasing to get back there. And immediately able to follow attacks, make attacks, really force the pace. He was he was more than good enough just to be on the podium. I'm not, I'm not saying he would have won it without bad luck because the whole race dynamic changes, but he you know he was it wasn't that the whole thing came back together with a K to go and he won the sprint. He you know he he was it wasn't a lucky podium if there can be such a thing in podium or in Paris Bay. It was a podium that he fully deserved. I mean he he overcame yeah he overcame a huge amount of just issues throughout the entire day. I, I was frankly stunned that he was even still there. Like, yeah, I mean, four or five, you just listed a bunch of them off. Multiple, multiple issues, and then still had the the energy to go off solo a couple of times. So, 
I, it's, it's tough to say. Would he have won, do you think, if he hadn't been sick? I'd hazard a guess that he could have won. We often hear about, you know, for to win a monument, you need a, you don't need to have good luck. You just not need it. You you don't need to have bad luck, is what a lot of writers will tell you, to, to win a monument. Van Aert had a ridiculous amount of bad luck today, and still put himself on the podium. And yeah, I think he. I think he. Well, we all know he could have won. And what I about think what about Vanderpool? Vanderpool, you know, we've seen him win Flanders, hugely impressive. We've seen him win in Copy Bartley, third in Milan San Remo. But what we probably weren't really thinking about is that to come back from an injury like he had so quickly, you do have to sacrifice amount, a, a certain amount of the base work that you do in building into your form. And when you do that, you have good weeks and you have bad weeks. And, you know, Matthew Vanderpool potentially had a, one of his really good weeks for Flanders. Was just about able to hold on to Pogaccia, but you know if you haven't, if you haven't got that, the the heavy heavy preparation that the riders are doing for these, for the whole spring season, it is difficult to maintain it across a, the the entire classic season. It just looked like he didn't have it, and it's tough to say why. That's that's I think a pretty good theory, but he just didn't. He didn't even seem that annoyed by it at the end. Like he he came over to the the sort of press area and. He had a smile on his face, and, and uh, frankly, he didn't look as wrecked as most of the other riders around him, but he just clearly, in the key moments, just didn't have the watts to actually do it. And that's actually that's a recurring theme with him at the end of these races. He just sort of, like, pops up and looks totally fine about four seconds later. <laughs> I don't really know how he managed to do that. Like, usually any, anybody who got dropped, even the riders who won, at Roubaix, just look absolutely annihilated. I mean, you were talking earlier about, you know, riders, you kind of have to give them a minute to like, remember who they are at the end of this thing. Vanderpool was just hanging out at the end of, at the end of Paris-Roubaix, it was, it was, it was wild. But my point being is that he didn't, he didn't seem, he seemed at peace with it, right? Like, I think he kind of knew that he was coming in a little undercooked, that Flanders had maybe been a bit of an anomaly that, that wasn't really reflective of where his form is at the moment. And he was just sort of okay with it at this point. He probably is okay with it. You know, a couple of months ago, he had a back injury. It looked like he'd missed the entire spring campaign. And he now has third place in San Remo and a win in Flanders, which is, and Warsdorf Vlandern. Not a bad return from what looked like a spring season he might miss. But I think also, you know, to your point about how fresh he looked in the finale, or in, in, the, at, in the velodrome at the finish, well, you know, when you think about it, Vanderpool, not at his best, is probably still better than most riders at their best. <laughs> and I say probably, but the, the real word is definitely, yes. And, you know, once the race has gone up the road, I'm not saying he cruises the final kilometers, but he's not emptying himself like you would do to compete for every place you can, try to get in the top ten, try to get in the top five, try to get yeah. on the podium, try to win the race. It's not quite the same. He, you know, he, yeah, he gets to the finish line easier than he would have otherwise. Uh, like you said, as soon as the victory is gone, he's kind of like, ah, I'll win this race at some point. I don't need to be 13th. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was third last year. Yeah. If I'm not going to be first. <laughs> don't really care anymore. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's not, he's, he probably wouldn't be the type of rider who would like get dropped on the first or second sector and make it all the way to the finish line no, outside the time limit. No, but yeah, he definitely you wouldn't. You do that today. Victor Kempenarts did that today. We were on the side of Cuivi, which is what, like two, two and a half sectors in? 
he was already off the back by like minutes. Like he had clearly already had a flat or some, some issue. I don't know exactly what it was. He was already off the back by minutes. He, he crossed the finish line outside the time limit. I think he was like second or third from the last rider in. He's not necessarily a rider who I would have expected that from, but kudos to that man. For, for We were at 150K out, and he was already three minutes back, and he just kept riding. I, 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 do, I love that about Roubaix. We mentioned it when we were sort of on the roadside, but it's pretty unique in this race. I, I both love it and hate it, and that... You know, the, every year, time and time again, the pros prove at Paris-Roubaix that bike racing really means something to them, and the Paris-Roubaix especially, and they get themselves to the finish line of Paris-Roubaix, you know, by hook or by crook or by hell or by high, high water, whatever saying you want to use. But it comes to the next race a week later, and they just don't care. <laughs> you know, it's just all that. It, it, it could be flesh alone on Wednesday, and if they come to the top of the murder he with a lap to go, and they're not in the front group, they swing over and get on the buses. <laughs> I can't really blame them for that either, but. No, but that's what's cool about Roubaix. It's just, it's, there's something different about it. Something different. I, I, wanna, I wanna talk briefly about one of the sort of most spectacular and unfortunate and kind of sad moments of the entire race, which was when Yves Lampert uh, appeared to clip a spectator not appeared to. It's very quite obvious he clips the spectator because he's just riding along and then all of a sudden he's sideways. Uh, kind of like skids out, half saves it, sits in the top tube, and then high sides, which of course means sort of like you, your bike catches and, the, and, and your wheel catches and you go over the top of the bike and land on his back. A, a super unfortunate moment. He seems a bit kind of cursed at Roubaix, Eve Lampard, and I personally, well, I know you were pulling it for him, Ronan, because you, you picked him. But I was pulling for him because he's, he's, he's not getting old. <laughs> but he probably doesn't have too many of these left. And he's not a Vanderpool. And he's not a Watt Bunner. And like, for him to win this race, which he is fully capable of doing, he needs all the luck in the world. And he just can't seem to find it. Definitely, you know, he finished fourth last year after a series of issues as well that sort of brought him out of contention. This year, he had fought his way into that leading group. He had made the right moves. He was with. Who was he with when he? He was with Mahorich when he crashed. You know, Van Barla, who won the race, had bridged across to him, and then to be taken down like that, it, you know, God only knows what's going through his head, and it must, it must be absolutely devastating. But what I want to know is, on that sector, that has, you know, sector of cobbles, second last section from the end of the race, quite possibly going to be a, you know, a, a decisive moment in the race. And for years, they first of all had the tarmac sections at the site open. So the riders just rode the tarmac. And actually, when Magnus backstepped in 2001 and 2004, they were riding the tarmac, taking like the straightest line possible through the couple of corners that they had. And it was actually as they switched across from one tarmac section to the other on the other side of the road that Johan Museo had his puncture that cost him a chance at victory in his final Paris Bay. And since, not since then, but in the latter years, they put in these concrete bollards, I think, to stop riders from riding on the tarmac section. But come here, you barricade the whole of the far forest of Arenberg and so many other parts of this course, and then they leave that one. It's like it's asking for trouble, having these concrete bollards every 50 meters or so that just invites the riders to hop on the tarmac for a second, then hop out, then in, then out. And if they're not in and out, they're riding as close as they can to the bollards. And yes, the spectator 
you know should be further back but this is bike racing that, that you know that's what kind of what makes it is the fans are there they're close to the action they're getting involved and obviously well, and, and must the, fans judge think, this one. the fans think they're going to be on the cobblestones if you are sort of like a new Roubaix fan, you've never been to this race before, you don't actually know that they avoid the cobblestones like the goddamn plague and that they will go anywhere else but on the cobblestones. It's fake news, isn't it, really? Yeah. And, and the riders think the fans are going to move back. Yeah. Because you know, all day, they're, and the same on mountain stages in any of the Grand Tours, they're riding at the fans thinking, when I get there, the fan is going to have stepped back. Yeah. And in this situation, the fan didn't step back. But I still think that sector where it is in the race should be should be barricaded because it's got those tarmac sections at the side of the road surely it must be easier to barriers than to put concrete bollards in <laughs> that that has to be easier it was a cock-up but it's not quite oppy on me is it like no yeah the crash was something though it's one of those crashes where you're like like you can hear the like gasp and it Sadly, it kind of just sums everything up for quick step at the minute. Like, finally, they have a rider at the pointy end. Because Gaspar Askren was out the back when we saw him on the, the second sector they did. But yeah, it's just like, especially Yves Lampard, I think he's such an easy guy to root for because he's okay. just like understated. He's not, he's not your traditional he's sort nice of like guy. quick step star, like yeah. with all the, everything that comes with that. Like, it's just a nice guy from Belgium who likes racing his bike. And this is the big yeah. one. What I was going to say was that because of my leg, I was a bit slower in getting to the quick step bus than I would have liked to. And just as I got there, Patrick Lefebvre was finishing up his interview in Flemish with Flemish TV. But I so wanted to ask him, was that an acceptable excuse? <laughs> because it's only a couple of days ago we said no more excuses for the team not performing. And, you know, and, and I'm obviously saying this jokingly because that was just... You know, Lampard had put himself in the right. Crash. Yeah, it was it was horrible to watch. Seen it a couple of times since, and it just gets no easier to watch. To to have someone's opportunity ripped from them like that is just painful to watch. Lefebvre did have a. He, he talked exclusively to our friend and colleague Dan Benson over at Vela News. Uh, had a great quote, actually. The quote was, "In my time, I would have turned back, taken my bike, and hit him on the head," which. Valid. I think that's probably what I would have done too. Except he probably hurt a lot, so maybe just wants to get on with it at that point. If you're making international calls that are going to cost you money, Lefebvre is always one you make because no matter what the topic, he's going to give you something like that. <laughs> like that's just the that's, that's the one guarantee you have, no matter how the riders are racing. You got him on speed dial, mate. I wish it made my it made my job a lot easier. What I find most surprising about that is that. Lefebvre admitted this is not his time at the moment. <laughs> it, it seems like he just thinks he owns everything, so I find it quite surprising for him to admit it's not his time. Oh, we've got some we've friends got some of the podcast fans. here. What are they saying? Wait. Ah, the no, the no longer interested. Le seul sujet que je, je laisse la main. Appelle à un ami. En vrai, moi, je m'y connais de ouf, mais euh, j'ai bu 5,50, alors euh, c'est pas pareil. Vous êtes anglais Oui. Pourquoi vous parlez de ça, alors enfin, Non, mais non, non, on parle pas de vous ça, vous on, on discute. Vous venez en France exprès Qu'est-ce qu'il y a De Paris-Roubaix Do you have me in France just to see the Paris-Roubaix Yes. Where do we journalists? Where do you come from Ireland. Uh, England. Oh, okay. United States. Spain, United States. United States. Spain. I'm not Spanish, mate. I'm English. But you came from Spain, Spain to get here. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. Such far away for 
Yeah, yeah it's silly, isn't it? <laughs> Have they realised this is not the voice? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. Thank you. We get kisses. Au revoir. <laughs> Not in COVID, which is a very lucky excuse that we currently have. What just happened? I don't speak French. You know those big beers they give out, like the Amstel Gold Race? They've had about four of them each. That's what's happened. I don't think Legend. our listeners can hear any of that. Um, but yeah, we had we had a couple a couple friendly neighbors. Uh, come over and say hi and and ask why what we were doing because we're hanging out in a restaurant with Someone microphones. Needs to dub their voices. Who yeah, uh, and and yeah, then she at the end said kisses and walked away. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Leo. <laughs> Sponsored by Leo. All right. We've talked about most of the bike race now at this point. Um, Does that mean we can. I feel like we should probably get to the, the frankly, the most shocking okay. and, and, and disturbing moment of, of the entire day. Amy slash Debbie, could you explain what happened today? It was a canine equivalent no. of the Lampard crash. Yes, it was. Agreed. Agreed. No, wait. You're not, the, you're not him in this situation. The dog is him. I'm an innocent victim. <laughs> Johnny is a spectator. The dog was yeah. that part. Is yeah, yeah, I mean. no, Johnny's looking. Anyway, picture the scene. I'm walking through, we're walking back to the car. I spot the most gorgeous, like, golden retriever poppy. If you're in the UK, imagine the Andrex poppy. Beautiful. I'm about to take a photo of the poppy. I'm very excited. It's going straight on Instagram. Johnny is looking for Ronan. He's in a rush. The poppy sees Johnny, he's like, yes, I want to also be in a rush. I'm going to run after you. <laughs> Johnny, complete disregard, kicks this beautiful, probably about six-month-old poppy, if that. In the head. In the head. In stride, the dog walked into my path, and I connected with that dog so sweet. And it took me about five seconds to try and figure out whether or not it was my fault. And when the owner started like sort of checking fault. the dog's like pressure points on its skull, I was like a bit concerned. <laughs> then luckily you got the video replay and then that absolved me of any sort of crime. VAR saved the day. VAR did save the luckily, day. Luckily, Johnny, this is why Johnny's got a cobble for a head. <laughs> Johnny, do you remember that advertisement we used to have? I think it was for a bookmakers or something where the guy would just grab the ball in the middle of a football game and launch it into the next field. What was that? It was a bit like that today, wasn't it? <laughs> if, if the dog hadn't been on a league on a lead, I regret that it might have ended up in wherever the rosette of Paru Bay is. But it would have been getting a wheel change from one of the one years down the road. Yeah, exa- yeah, they could have been of some use, couldn't they? Instead of you know, it was, at the, it was at the end of Arenberg. And the riders coming out of Arenberg had a rougher time than that poor dog had. No, the dog had a rougher time. It got kicked in the head. This is after Johnny's been yelled at by French women earlier on in the day. Yeah, I got, I got, yeah. And then, yeah, the, the old, the old French woman pushed me in the back. I've, yeah, I feel like I've been at Roubaix today. I still made it to the finish line. So, yeah. The dog might Dylan not. Van Baal may have crossed the line first, but if there's another winner. I no. feel like this is where we wrap up. Yeah, we all need to go. We all need to go to bed. What about the Do porcelain? We, 
We don't need another, we, another time. <laughs> we can talk about the portaloo next time. Uh, Cryptic. <laughs> do we have a nerd nugget, Ronan? Is there anything else worth mentioning on the on the tech front? I mean, it's Rubé, of course. The there down. Is, but yeah, like it's Rubé. It might not be quite as tech centric as it was back in the day. Uh, thank you, thirty mil tires, for making the whole thing pretty boring. But still on first suspension. Yes. Uh, but there was, yeah, there was obviously quite a lot of tech at, at the Start Village in, in Compiègne this morning. A full gallery up on cyclingtips.com. Great website. Great website. Check it out if you want to see it all. I think uh, the most interesting the most interesting thing was probably the number of teams that were running tire inserts. Uh, pretty much all the Vittoria teams except Alpes and Fenix were, according to the mechanics, were running tire inserts. Enios were running tire inserts. Wouldn't tell me which brand they were using because their tire sponsor, Continental, does not make a tire insert to the best of my knowledge. But I have it from a good source within the team that they were using them. Um, other interesting notes in the Start Village. Speaking of Alpes and Phoenix, all of their riders, bar Matthew Vanderpool, had switched out the integrated cockpit on their bikes. Uh, the new Canyon Air Road uses that CP0018 cockpit. Obviously. Yes, the adjustable cockpit. Uh, and the team had opted for a mix of ulti Canyon Ultimates and the Canyon Air Road with the external cable routing in order to be able to use the Hitch 11 cockpit, which allows them to have a normal headset with the compression bung and a standard um, yeah, compression headset style system. Not sure what the reason was there. Didn't really get much of an answer when I asked. Amy and Johnny look fascinated right now. <laughs> Is it time for bed? I'm, I'm currently looking at Ronan like he's got three heads. <laughs> and that, that's that's on me, that's not on Ronan. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, one interesting point. The other thing I found quite, quite interesting was Anthony Turgis' bike. He was riding, uh, I was gonna say a one-by system. He had one chain ring on the front on its crankset, but it was not a one-by chainring. It was a standard Jure's 55-tooth chainring, massive chainring. Uh, but not a narrow one. Not a narrow one, no, just yeah. a standard 55. Uh, and he paired that with an XTR rear derailleur. Um, quite bizarre, but perhaps not the most bizarre derailleur we've seen today because pretty much all the Jumbo Visma team were racing with the Jure's 90-70. DI2 rear derailleur from three generations ago at this point. It is 11 speed, uh, but it's, you know, there's two newer generations since that. Uh, couldn't really think of a reason why that was, except from perhaps availability. The team were using the Cervelo Caledonia today, which they only use for Paru Bay, so perhaps, you know, lack of availability at 12 speed. On a bike that they only use once per year, they threw on any old 11 speed derailleur, but it doesn't really answer why they didn't use the 9150 derailleur. And I was chatting with Zach Edwards, the resident pro mechanic with Nerd Alert, and he suspected it's one of two things. Either the shorter um, derailleur cage on the 9050 setup might reduce chain slap in some way, so he opted for that, or Yumbo Visma opted for that, or it could simply be down to the fact that they wanted... Uh, <laughs> They want to clutch the really? Instagram videos of Ronan and then Johnny's reaction to the things that Ronan is saying because Johnny has no idea what's happening. But <laughs> do continue, Ronan. Because I know what you're saying. And some of our listeners will. 
or in that in the absence <laughs> in the absence of a clusterator that had the Jurace branding on it, the team refused to use anything with any substandard in their eyes. Mark. That feels like the most likely scenario to me. Purely, like the riders don't want to see the word Altegra or GRX on their derailleur. They want to see Durace, and so they put the Durace on even though it's probably not the best choice. Bearing in mind this is the only team that still runs the legendary Dugast name on their tires, and one of the only teams still running tubulars in the whole race, so stuck in their ways, I'm not sure if we can say that, but definitely uh, traditionalists, let's say. Yeah, more so than others. There you go, Nerd Nugget wrapped up. Weekend Nothing. wrapped up. Weekend wrapped up. It was a... It was, uh, it was a really good weekend of bike racing. I enjoyed it with you all. I hope our listeners out there enjoyed it. Did Debbie enjoy it? You'll have to ask her. She's my mom. <laughs> you ask her. Amy, ask Debbie if she enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, heaps. If you don't know what we're talking about, and you don't know who Debbie is, well, frankly... Then listen to Freewheeling, all right? Exactly. You should listen to Freewheeling, because if you listen to Freewheeling, you would know who Debbie is. Ronan, don't you listen to Freewheeling? What is that face? You know I am the first person to listen to Freewheeling every week. Are you? Yes. Is that a stat? Can I ask Abby to fact check? Yeah, I'm not sure if, there's a, if there is a way for her to track that. I'm kind of getting concerned about the... <laughs> <laughs> we have no idea who listens. This is how much I know about tech. <laughs> What about you, Johnny? A good weekend. Dog kicker. A good weekend. Yeah. Two great races. Enough madness that it feels like Roubaix, which is, I think, all you can ask for. The highlight was still Kaylee and I's new PR through Arenberg. <laughs> I didn't write, obviously, but I got a PR. That honestly feels like about 10,000 years ago. <laughs> I don't know why. I do know why, but at the same time, I don't. Don't you remember our lovely stroll to the boulangerie? You guys saved the day that day. That was that's the most stress I've been under so far. Like the scrum today, like trying to get quotes, I'd do that ten times over like talking in French to someone who doesn't want to make you five baguettes. Midway panic when you didn't know if the card machine was gonna work. I had to I had to read out my phone number in French, which is just yeah, that's not what I signed up for. Anyway. Thank you everybody for listening this weekend. We hope you enjoyed the extra episodes. Uh, we won't be back tomorrow. Actually, we this this I think this is going to go up on Monday will, by though, now. because we're troopers. Freewheeling will be back. Uh, we won't. This is this is your week's episode. And we'll be back. And you'll be thankful. You will be thankful for that. <laughs> we'll be back in a week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.